You can be seated. If you've got a, a Bible, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Um, either in the Bible you're holding or turning on or get your app out. Titus chapter 2. If you've got a Bible and you're flipping pages, uh, it's near the back. It's with all the T's, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. And uh, we've been there for last week. We're there this week and next week. It's a short book here that Paul wrote to a church planter. Uh, most people think it's the only book in the New Testament written specifically to a church planter. Titus was planting a church on, a, on, an, isle, on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But um, I want to start today talking about something that happened in our family last, last uh, spring. Last spring... Uh, as a family, we were talking through what all life commitments we had and what we wanted to do. And Maddie decided, that's my five-year-old daughter, Maddie. Maddie decided that it was time for her to take up a sport. Uh, she, she just wants to be a well-rounded individual. Maddie is my go-getter. Like she's wanting to do ballet and gymnastics and a sport. Um, Maddie's um, in kindergarten this year and, and, and loves every minute of it. In fact, last night we had a breakdown at our house because she found out she could not go to school today. And uh, her words to me were, they can't do this to me. Give me two days off from school every week. And so most of I know most of the kids feel that way. But Maddie particularly feels that way. And she's upset about it. And so she decided that Maddie's sport, the sport that she was going to be good at and, um, you know, world famous in was soccer. So this is Maddie in her soccer uniform right here. And with her pink soccer ball. And Maddie was going to be a, a, a world-renowned soccer player. And so we signed up at uh, Moss Wright Park and did our, our rite of passage through the uh, Middle Tennessee Football Club, uh, all the soccer stuff there. And so for last spring, I got to attend many soccer practices and games with five-year-old girls. I don't know if you've been to a lot of games and practices with five-year-old girls in soccer. It is not the most, um, it's not the purest form of soccer, right? I mean, kids just kind of, they look almost like an amoeba. They just kind of go wherever the ball is. Um, one person compared it to a bunch of Labrador's retrievers that are just kind of wherever the ball is. There's just a mass of kids going, except for usually one kid that's just off in their own world somewhere over in the corner doing their own thing, right? And so um, I read this week about the job of a soccer coach with a five-year-old team. There were three jobs that the soccer coach of a five-year-old team is, and the first one is to make sure the team goes in the right direction. Now, I don't mean like in a big picture kind of way. I don't mean like we're going to go towards the playoffs and all that. I mean like they literally kick the ball in the right direction. Like if you watch a five-year-old soccer game, the first thing they all do is they all line up at like at the half line and they all point to kids and say, we're going to this goal, right? Are you with me here, right? Like we're going to this goal. And always then they'll, the coach will ask, now which goal are we going to? And there's always one kid like that goal. No, we're not going to that goal. We're going to this goal. And there's always that awkward moment, um, or usually in a game, one time in a game or every couple of games, where the kid kicks the ball into the wrong goal. Right. And the kid is very proud of themselves for kicking the ball into the goal. And they turn around to look at their parents like, look what I did. I kicked the ball into the goal. And as a parent, you have that dilemma of um, do I cheer? Do I say that's the wrong goal? And say, ah, good. All right. So, number one, you got to go in the right direction at halftime. Go that direction. The second thing is 
that you have to teach them that they can't walk off the field while the game is going on. Right? Like, kid will just walk off, decide, I'm done, let's go, let's go sit on the bench. Or Maddie did this a couple of times, that, that she would kick the ball, which was, she'd finally get in there in that scrum, and she would actually kick the ball. And then she'd kind of turn around to look at us, like, did you see what I just did? Like, game's still going on, but she's like, hey, look, it's me, look at that, right? So you have to teach them, you can't walk off the field. Here's the last one. There is such a thing as positions. Like, there are jobs on a soccer field. There, when you watch a five-year-old soccer game, there's no positions. There's no center back or striker or goalie. It's just one mass. You have to teach them the game is better and you have a better chance of winning if some people will play defense and some people will play offense and you're in the right position in the right place. Now bring all that up to tell you this. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is basically serving as a coach for a five-year-old soccer team. We talked about last week that Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was a church planner out in the... Uh, in fact, we got a map here of where he was sending it. It was to the Isle of Crete, right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And that Crete was a particularly difficult place to plant a church. It was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was immoral. It had gambling. It had prostitution. It had all kinds of immoral things happening. It was also, if you remember from last week, if you were here, kind of the center of the piracy of the ancient world. And so we talked about it was kind of like trying to plant a church among the cast of pirates of the Caribbean. And so it was a particularly difficult place. And Paul writes to Titus. And what he says is, Titus, what I'm going to tell you is you've got groups of people in your church. And we'll talk about in a minute which group you're in. There are groups of people in your church. And your job, Titus, is to get them going in the right direction. To point them to the goal where we're looking and say, that's where you've got to go. Part of your job is to tell them they can't walk off the field before it's time. They can't leave the action and go do their own thing. And they each have to understand they have positions to play and that life is better in the midst of that. Paul wants them to know in this book of Titus chapter 2 that there are things that we are to do. We need to all go in the same direction and play our position and, and, and keep at what God's called us to do in order to see the church really thrive. And so before we go into kind of those instructions, I want you to see the reason Paul is doing all this. And it comes in chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles open or you've got it up on your, on your phone or, or iPad. In Galatians, or Titus chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You, however, this is Paul talking to Titus, must teach, must speak, must say to them what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Here, here's what Paul is saying. The first chapter he tells them about false teachers and that they can't be listening to false teachers. And then in, in chapter 2 he says, now... When you have it down, what true faith is, when you understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, then you have to teach them what appropriate behavior is because of what Christ has done. And for the next few verses, what he's going to do is say, here are the ways that you act if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what follows once you get the doctrine part right. We, We talked about this series is called kinetic faith, because the idea is that when we believe something as deeply, when our lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand what it means to be saved and to be to be forgiven and to have our guilt removed and to be set right with God, then it ought to impact how we live that out. 
In fact, this is kind of the bracket where we're going to be in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. But in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The word for there is kind of misleading because what it really means is you do these things. What we're going to talk about in a minute. Because God has given grace to us. You can read it. Do these things because of the grace of God that has appeared. Or do these things in response to the grace of God. He makes the same point on both sides of the list. When he says that everything in our lives is to be reshaped and rethought because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single thing in our lives is to be reshaped and rethought because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, I don't think we've emphasized that enough. We have made it sound like that the gospel is a part of what you do. It's a portion of who you are. But it changes everything about what we do. Listen, the Christian life is not a to-do list of things that have to be taken care of. It's not a set of morals to master. It's not a set of rituals to adopt. It is from start to finish a response to God's grace. Several decades ago, there was a day in the life of America that changed everything for the people that were here. Now, my guess is most of us, if not all of us, weren't around, but we've heard stories of it, at least I have. It was called VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. There's a couple of pictures I have from it. This is New York City and just flooded with people. They were dancing in the streets. Things were happening all over. And this guy here is in the middle of the street. He's a sailor. He sees a girl dressed like a nurse and he just grabs her and kisses her. Now, you want to know kind of an interesting fact about this? I found out this week, you, this girl, you see her? You know, I'm pointing, y'all see it? He married her. They were on a date when he gra- first date, when he grabbed the other woman to kiss her. Right? Now, that's kind of crazy. And they said that, They've interviewed her. Were you upset? But she goes, I wasn't upset because everything in life had changed. And that's just how we felt. Like, there is no way that our generation, my generation, can ever understand the way the world changed the day that Japan surrendered. And it changed the way people lived. Uh, It was interesting because I saw um, they have the newspaper from like the New York Times the day this happened. And there's this whole story up here about the victory and all that. And then under the fold, you know, like on the bottom, y'all remember that phrase under the fold was travel this summer or this year to be as high as pre-war. Plenty of gas now available. Like everything. People are going to see each other. Life changed. And as the church, we must realize that if we've lived and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. So here's what Paul's going to do in Titus. He's going to talk to four groups of people. All right. The four groups of people are the older men, the younger men. Anybody want to guess the older women and the three of you are following. All right. Younger women. All right. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you whether you're part of the older men or the younger men, the older women or the younger women. I'll let you kind of decide that if you want to look in Greek and uh, in rabbinic literature, uh, older men were considered anybody that was above 40. And I made that up completely because I'm 39. And so uh, um, but generally uh, we're going to talk about older men. We're talking about younger men, older women and younger women. Generally, this is what this is kind of what the, the idea was. If you are um, if you have kids that have been raised 
and are like gone to college, like your kids are off to college or moved out of the house or supposed to be moved out of the house, whatever that is, you know, 19, your kids are 19 or, or 18 or older then you are considered older. That's Paul. That's not me. All right. So if you've got kids that are kind of out of the house, you are older. If you've got if you're in that age bracket when you've got kids or you don't have kids yet or you're kind of you're maturing and you're growing, but you're not there, then you're you're in the younger. So generally in our society, older is somewhere. The break is somewhere between 45 and 50. Okay, somewhere around there, you consider yourself older. If you're 55 and you're like, I feel like a 20 year old. Good for you. All right. But in this case, you're considered older. All right. And so as we talk through those categories, just think through that. You're going to find some of you are kind of on the edge. I'm 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 younger, according to some things, but feel older, according to others. And so you'll feel on the edge. But I want you just to kind of listen as we look at what Paul says to Titus. This is how it should impact you in your life. All right. And so in chapter uh, two, verse two, it says this. Teach the older men to be temperate. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, we're going to talk about some kind of uh, older groups, younger groups. And I'm not saying that every older person is like this, every younger person is like this. But we're going to talk about the temptations of each of those life stages. When he's talking about older men here, it's interesting because a lot of these things he will say to other groups. He'll say it to the older women or the younger women or even to the younger men. But there's one word in here that is unique to older men. There's one word, and it's endurance. And here's the reason. There's an temptation for older men who get in the last half or the last third of their lives to start to coast. They feel like they've done enough. They feel like they're tired. They feel like they've made all the money that they need. They've got a nice nest egg, or they've invested what they needed to do. They're done raising their kids, and it's just time to coast. They don't really give up. They just kind of put it on cruise control and think everything will take care of itself. You ever, you ever watched a, um, a sports team that gets a, like a lead? Um, I don't know, like 17 to 3 in the fourth quarter of a football game. Uh, and, and then it feels like they just decide, look, I think that's enough. That's good. We're just going to kind of take it easy for now. Anybody, anybody experience that last night? All right. And so, like, you, those of you that follow sports know that th- that's always a recipe for disaster when you just think, I'm just going to kind of, Coast. There are a lot of guys in our society, a lot of men, that once they get to that 50, 60, 70 year old range, they just begin to coast. They start to think only about themselves and pursue their hobbies and their interests. They weary of giving themselves to service. They get grumpy and cynical. You know, there's a reason that there were like three movies called Grumpy Old Men, right? Grumpier old men, grumpiest old men. I don't know what the fourth would be called if they had one. Y'all, y'all know any grumpy old men? Don't point, don't, don't wave, right? There's a reason that because they just kind of like, they're done. They worry about themselves. And when you worry about yourselves, you get grumpy and cynical. And Paul says to that group of people, be self-controlled. Don't think of only your needs. Think of the desires of the needs and the wants and the things that are going to help the next generation come to know Jesus better. Your life's accomplishment should not be about what the bank statement says when you get to the end of it. That's not what your accomplishment should be. It should be about how did you invest in the next generation. 
Don't spend the last year of your life just playing golf and fishing and collecting toys. Give it to the kingdom of God. Be sound in faith. Don't get cynical. Don't get cynical about our country and about what's happening. Don't, I don't understand young people. I don't know what they're thinking. That's what's wrong with this country is all those young people. World's all going to hell. Nothing we can do about it. Man, I wish we could do something. But if it was like it was when I was young, we just go back. Can I tell you something? This is going to be earth-shattering news for you. Ready? God's promises today are exactly as they were in the 1950s. His promises have not ceased to exist. His power has not been diminished. He raised Jesus from the dead. He will fulfill what he said he will fulfill. Man, we live in a culture that is just cynical no matter what age you are. And it, just to be real honest, I don't see how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and be cynical. Be temperate. Don't give yourselves to things that are going to take the edge off. Alcohol. Getting involved in just watching TV all day or putting yourself into a hobby that's going to take the edge off. He says to the older men, endure. Keep moving. Keep working. Don't ever stop. He basically says, if, even if you're lying in a nursing home on the last days of your life, you are still here and a part of the greatest story and mission that the earth has ever seen. So don't give up. Can I tell you something? I believe that our culture, I believe that our churches, and I believe this church need men that are going to endure. The way that I thought about it this week is we need more Caleb's. You know who Caleb is from the uh, Old Testament? We need more men like Caleb. Caleb was a um, Caleb was a guy that when Moses led the Israelites out, he was one of the leaders of it. When Caleb was 40 years old, so when Caleb was my age, um, he went with a group of 11 other people to scout out the promised land God had promised he was going to give the people. And they went over into the promised land. When they got over there, the guys were huge. Twelve of them got together and they came back and they said, give a report to the people. And ten of the spies stood up and said, they went over to the other place and said, listen, we've been over there. They're huge. There's no way we can defeat them. There's absolutely no way we can do it. It's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. And the people got all riled up. And Joshua and Caleb are the only two that stand forward and said, listen, the people are huge. It is a monumental task. But our God said we're supposed to go. So we're going to go. And God will deliver them to us. God became displeased because the country said, no, we're not going. And so he allowed that entire generation to die off. Forty years. Only two left that got to go in the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. They go into the promised land, you know, from the book of Joshua. Joshua was the leader. They get through the first few conquests. They get to chapter 14, and it's time for them to divide up the land. All right, this is the land that you're going to have, tribe, tribe, tribe. And the first person that gets to choose their land, does anybody want to guess? It's kind of an open book test here. Who is it? Okay, who have been talking about? Caleb, right? Now, here's the thing. He was 40 when he scattered out the promised land. It's 45 years later. Anybody want to do quick math? How old is he now? 85. How many of you in here are younger than 85? Let me see. All right? Some of you didn't raise your hand. Wow, you look great for your age. We, 85 years old, and he goes to Joshua, and I love this. Because the American dream is to go to Joshua and go, Hey, Joshua, hey, um... There's that little piece of land over there on the lake. And it's got a little porch out there. And I go sit out there on the porch. And I can just sit in, the, uh, sit in my swing out there and enjoy the last 10 or 15 years of my life. And, man, that'd be great. That's not what Caleb does. 
He goes up to Joshua and he literally says to Joshua, we're going to put some, some scripture on the screen in a minute, but I want you to hear this. He goes up to, to him and says, he says to him, I'm as strong today as I was when I was 40. And that's God's blessing on my life. And so he says to this, I am this day 85 years old. I'm as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as strength was then for war and for going and coming. Uh, Caleb doesn't say I'm not as good as I once was. He says I'm as ba- better than I ever been. And then he says this. Now, this doesn't seem big to us, but I'll explain it in a minute. He says, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you have heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. I love this. He says, Joshua, the hardest place right now to take, the hardest place left to conquer is the hill country. And even though I'm 85 years old, give me the hill country. I want the hardest task you've got for the glory of God. And then, you see this in Scripture a lot, but it's just funny to me every time it comes up. Give me the hill country. Then he says, what does he say? Maybe. It's possible. There's a good chance that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Hey, hey, give me the hill country. I want the most difficult place. And and perhaps there's a a chance. You're not going to believe this, Joshua. Maybe God's going to show up. Now, we need more men like Caleb. That when they get to 60 and 70 and 80 years old, don't say, I've done my task. It's time to walk off the field. Get back on the field and take bold risks for the glory of God and the sake of his name. I am so blessed to have two men in my life that as they get older, they get stronger in their faith. My father-in-law, we, uh, he was here this week. My uh, father-in-law is pa- pastor for many, many years. He's retired from pastoring, working as much as he's ever worked doing pastoral care at his church. He was here Monday because Susan's birthday was this week and we were eating Monday night. And sometimes when we're um, when he and I get together, um, Susan has to remind us that it's not a church conference like we don't have to talk church the whole night. And she had to remind us Monday night because he and I got on the topic of Brazil. Now, here's what I love about my, my father in law. OK, my father in law will turn 80 next year. OK. 80. And we're sitting there discussing his two or three trips to Brazil next year. Part of one of his trips is he's going to help lead a youth revival as an 80 year old American evangelist in Brazil. That's finishing strong. Most guys would have said 10 years ago, it's time to turn that over to the younger generation. And he has in some ways, but he still goes a lot. I think about my dad, my dad, who's uh, younger than than my father-in-law. But when I was growing up, my dad was not, um, my family were not the church goers. We weren't the people in church all the time. My dad worked seven days a week from seven to three. And I don't know, this is a pretty traditional church I grew up in. And so we had 11 o'clock services on Sunday morning. And when you're working seven to three on Sunday, you're not there. My dad was a guy that was never really bad, but he wasn't really kind of sold out to the Lord either. And man, it's been encouraging to me to see in the last 10 years, my dad has grown more in the last 10 years in his faith than any other time I remember. My dad works in a, worked for many years, he's retired, um, in, a, in a rubber manufacturing plant. That's a dirty place. And I went into his office one day and there was a sheet of paper on his desk kind of pinned up right above his desk. And it had like smudge marks from his hand, from the rubber in his hand. It had all these names on it. And I said, Dad, Dad, what is this? And he said, um, 
He said, that's my list of people at this office that have asked me to pray for them. And I keep it there and I pray for them all the time. My dad is retired, but he spends sometimes Sundays, sometimes Saturdays, going to the intensive care unit at the local hospital and giving snacks to people that have loved ones in intensive care. Part of what he's done with his time now is when the church staff uh, needs to go to lunch or they need to go, um, they need to go do some planning or something. They now call my dad and my dad goes and answers phones at the church. He also brings donuts to the church staff every other week. I'm not I'm trying to give you all some suggestions here. All right. You know, you know, he takes he, he bought all the staff iPads. He really didn't. But that would be a great Great. Those new iPad pros. I mean, church staff appreciation months coming up and just trying to help you out. All right. But now he's given the last part of his life as much as he can to the Lord. And my dad's got all kinds of physical ailments. Some of y'all don't know this. My dad had six bypass surgery um, 12 years ago. My dad lost an entire lung in surgery from lung cancer. So he's down to one lung. And yet he's decided to give his life to the Lord. We need more Caleb's. I read this quote, and I I love this, and then we'll move on to another group. It's not the going out of a port, but the coming in that determines the success of a voyage. Older men endure. Then he moves to the older women. And I'm really not going to tell you in this room which of you are older women and which of you are younger. All right? I'm going to get in enough trouble as it is in this part, so we're not going to do that. Look at the next verse here. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. I heard a pastor and a seminary professor named Dr. Idle talking about this particular passage of Scripture, and he focused on the word reverent there. And he said this, he said, older women can sometimes quit caring what people think so they lose their filters on speaking their mind and talking badly about people. And then he says this, and I'm going to say this several He says this, not me. He, the seminary professor, says this. When you are young, you have two things that you lose over age. A natural physical beauty and filters. And when those things are gone, if you have an ugly spirit, there's nothing left to mask it. It's he, not me, but let it fall where it may. In truth, he says, the ugliness was always there. It's just been masked by physical beauty and filters. By contrast, I mean, I know some of these ladies in our church. There are older women that are so sweet and godly and caring and lovely. That they seem more beautiful in their older age than they did they were young. Because their character begins to shine through. Character is more beautiful than physical charms. And then he says, what would it look like if we could all see what was just the spirit? Unmasked by physical beauty, charm, or filters. Man, my goal is that when I'm older, when I'm an old man, that I am a gracious, encouraging Old man, not grumpy or cynical. My prayer is for Susan and I that we would be a couple that would be encouraging and sweet and helpful 
not bitter and upset. But that doesn't just happen. It's cultivated through the gospel. Listen to the last quote from that guy. You notice how I basically quoted one guy this whole time because I want him to be in trouble, not me. Listen to this, though. He says, you can't really take credit when you're beautiful at 20. A lot of people are. But you have no one but yourself to blame if you're ugly at 80. Be reverent. Not slanderers, not talking about people, not being ugly about other people or addicted to much wine, but to teach, to be someone encouraging to the younger generation. All right? So we're done with the older. We're now going to move to the younger. Thank you, Jeff. Then they, so once the women are doing what the older women they can do, they can encourage the younger women. I am so glad there's nothing controversial in this part. Um, To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Nothing controversial there at all, right? This is like one of those verses, I'm joking there, this is one of those verses that like talk show hosts bring up, but you know the Bible says women are supposed to do stay at home and not work, and that they're supposed to do whatever their husband says and not ever complain about it. Is that what Paul's saying here? What does Paul say? He says, is that what he's saying? No? I mean, yes, he may yes. Here's what he's saying. Here's what I will tell you. The Bible is absolutely, y'all are really scared to answer on this question, all right? The Bible for sure teaches that it's okay and sometimes necessary for women to work outside the home. You may remember one of the most, uh, one of the most famous passages on women and what the ideal of a woman is comes in the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs what? 31, right? And in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, we see her making stuff, selling stuff, working outside the home to provide for her family. What this does mean though is this, okay? This isn't going to make it any easier. It means that there's a tendency for young women, those raising their kids or those that are getting prepared to raise their kids, like young men, to be lured away from God-given responsibilities by the promise of being fulfilled somewhere else. And there's no denying that God has given the mother a very particular responsibility and a special place in the home. And that often requires us to sacrifice other things that she could do to fulfill herself and to actualize who she wanted to be in her self-actualization. Sometimes that's her career. Sometimes that's parts of her career. Sometimes that's advancement. But sometimes that responsibility at home supersedes a personal path of fulfillment. And when you do, there is a sense of loss. But in the gospel, God says that our primary goal is not to fulfill ourselves, but to faithfully serve him. That's one of those areas that if you talk like this, some of you even are hearing this, and you're like, that is completely different than what I think. You, you say this in the culture, and they, say, they look at you like you are speaking another language. Uh, I read this week about a couple of years ago on Good Morning America, there was a, a lady named Linda Hirschman, who's a professor or a Ph.D. or something, And she said that people, women that chose to stay at home to raise their family were, quote, unquote, living lesser lives. And somebody on the panel or the interview said, but many of those women find their work valuable. And she said, well, I would like to see a description of daily lives that substantiates that. It doesn't sound particularly interesting for a complicated, educated person. Now, while you get all riled up about that statement, 
what she doesn't realize is her idea of self-fulfillment leads to a place you don't want to go. Because if your life is all about fulfilling yourself and doing what you've been called to do, and so you make, or not what called to do, but what you want to do, what you think would be best for you, then things that get in your way are annoyances that have to be done away with or minimized. You start to think of your kids as accessories to life rather than people for whom you would lay down your life. You get pregnant. It's not quite a convenient time. Then you have an abortion. If your kids get in the way of your career, then you figure out other plans for them. If your parents in their older age become a hindrance to your career, you just put them in a home and forget about them. You're not a very good friend because you're always analyzing what this friend can give me in my advancement of my self-actualization. Hirschman thinks her mentality leads to empowering women. It leads them to using people rather than loving them. And Christians aren't given that ability. We are called to seek our fulfillment in God. If you want to model for that, you just look no further than our Savior. I mean, think about the moment when he washed his disciples' feet. That's not a very important task. That's not the task that we would give to a head of state, much less the maker of the entire world. But he didn't find his fulfillment in the importance of the task. He found his fulfillment in the approval of the Father. And for some of you in this room... God has assigned you right now to care for the children and establish a home. Find your fulfillment in that. As one pastor said, if Jesus found fulfillment in washing feet, you can find fulfillment in wiping butts for a season two. All right. Didn't think that was good. All right. I wiped a lot of butts in my life. That would be the thing people will pull out and put on Twitter or something right there. All right. Here's the fulfillment that we get. It's from hearing the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. So when Paul is saying, be busy at home, he's not saying exclusively stay at home and not work outside the home. He's just saying, make sure that working outside the home doesn't overtake the responsibility you have to building a home. I saw this quote this week because what what he's saying here applies to dads just as much as it does to moms. Just to be real honest with you, there are a lot of dads that check out and get career fulfillment in their mind and they completely miss that part of building a home. And there's an author that writes a lot on spiritual warfare. He's a scholar. He's a professor. And people ask him one time, I love this, in an interview they said, what's your favorite book you've ever written? What's the favorite book you've ever written? He's written multiple books. And this is it. Peter Kreft is his name. And Peter Kreft says, my favorite book is the one I didn't write when my kids were young. He was able to write, but he said, I never wanted to write a book and make it take over my responsibility to my kids. And here's the truth, guys, ladies. We live in a culture that's going to tell us to, to fill our kids' lives and to fill our lives with so much stuff that we don't have time to do the necessary task of building a home and the spiritual foundation that goes into it. I mean, Jeff talked a couple of weeks ago about raising a godly generation, and I know a lot of y'all, that resonated with you, but the problem is we've so filled our lives and our careers and everything around us with stuff that we don't have the time to do the spiritual formation that ought to be happening in the home. And when that happens, we fulfilled our stuff. We filled our stuff too much. You know, I mean, I'm at that place. I've got four kids. I mean, Susan and I look at each other and sometimes wonder how in the world are we even still upright? I mean, it's hard. No amens. It's hard. But I don't want, you know, 
last night. Y'all, y'all know I like Tennessee football. And they had a big game last night. And there was this daddy-daughter dance date thing. And man, I would never give up going to that with those two girls so I could sit at home and watch a football game. As much as I wanted to watch that football game, I love my girls more. Man, to see the look in their eyes when we walked in and there was snow flying in our gym, Chick-fil-A put on. and Man, it's awesome, unbelievable. I never give that up. I, don't, I love to play golf. I mean, I love to play golf. I'm not really good at it, but I like it. You know how many times I've played golf in the last three years? Four times. Now, I don't know if you're good with averages. That's not very often, all right? I don't take guys trips, although I'd love to take guys trips. I've taken one guys trip in um, 12 years that we've had Eli. And that was to the Masters because you don't turn down the Masters regardless of what's happening, right? But, and I'm not saying this to say, hey, man, look at me. I'm awesome. But I, I've just come to that place in my life where I realize, man, I, I don't have much time with these kids. Eli's 12. 12 and a half. He'll tell you he's on the other side of 12. He's close to a teenager. Five years from now, we're talking about college. Seems like I turned around and Ava was three. Just seemed like it just happened. And I don't want to give my life to something that's going to take away from my life to them. I mean, I mean, I was yesterday. I was at a birthday party. I was um, at the Jacksons' house. We had a birthday party for little Izzy, and uh, I found myself in a heated conversation with David about a plot point in Doc McStuffins. Right? How many of you know what Doc McStuffins is, right? Uh, David, you want to sing the theme song for us real quick? No, don't, please. Um, but we were talking about a plot point that David was really concerned about, and I found myself arguing. Mean, you could say it was a disagreement, right, David? I mean, we were having an intense disagreement about the validity of a plot point in a Doc McStuffins episode. My uh, entertainment choices have drastically changed. Right, David was talking about he's going to drive down the road one day with the Doc McStuffin soundtrack blaring with his windows down, like rolling, like you know, like putting up the stoplights next to people. Right? You that aren't parents are looking at me like, what are you talking about? It's funny, all right? It'd be crazy to see that. And so you just your life changes because that's where I am right now, but that's okay because one day I want to hear, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And when I get to heaven. God's not going to ask me what size church did you grow? How many people did you preach to? How many people walked down an aisle when you were preaching? He's going to ask me, were you faithful? And he says to the women and to the men, be busy at home means to make sure you build a home. And if that wasn't controversial enough, the next thing he says is, be kind and be so, go back, I jumped ahead of you, be subject to their husbands. One pastor a guy by the name of J.D. Greer has described marriage as this. It's a dance and with both partners reenact a part of the gospel. It's a dance and with both, in which both partners reenact a part of the gospel. The husband does it by loving his wife like Christ loves the church, which means putting her wants and her needs ahead of his own to the point that he would lay down his life for her. Now, if you're going to lay down your life for her, that obviously means that there are going to be moments that you defer to her on other decisions. So it's okay to let her choose where to eat or to go on vacation or what color the drapes are in your house. And the wife, in her part of the dance, submits her will to her husband's. It has nothing to do with superiority. It has to do with positions we play to reenact the Trinity and the gospel. 
And when you do that, it's a beautiful dance of marriage. Listen to Matt Chandler. A husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say, how disgusting and archaic. A lot of people who say they are turned off by the Christian teaching on headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages they see. My spiritual leadership in my family is not about me dominating the decisions or dominating my wife. In fact, if I love Susan like Christ loves the church, I voluntarily lose nine out of ten arguments about preference. Because I'm putting her wants and her needs above mine. What she does in response is to yield to me when decision-making responsibility, which God has given to me. I love how Kathy Keller, um, Pastor Tim Keller, who I've quoted several times, They were discussing a move to New York where he's now the pastor. And she said it this way. She said, it means that in matters of disagreement, I yield to Tim the deciding vote. I get a vote. He gets a vote. He gets a deciding vote. So, for example, they were trying to decide to move to New York City. He felt like they should go. She didn't. They had to make a decision to not make what had been functionally wrong. They let a month go past. And finally they got to it and they said, yes, do you think we should go? Tim said, yes. She said no, and he says, okay, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And Kathy says, you don't put that on me. You're not putting the responsibility on me. That is a God-given responsibility that you have. You have to make it and bear the responsibility. It is your decision. The man lays down his life. The woman submits her will to her husband. And that's the way we adorn the gospel and show it to the world around us. Here's the last one. Likewise, now you can go to the next verse. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Just real quickly, you notice guys only get one thing here. Did y'all notice that? Like uh, the old men got like six things. The uh, older women got like four things. The young women got like seven. We get how many? That's all we can handle. All right. And I'm not I'm kind of joking about that, but I'm kind of not. All right. Here's the reason. Because when it comes to temptation for young men, the Achilles heel of men is that they are ruled by their desires and their passions and their pleasure. And if we, if you and I, could figure that out, if you get this, if you can control your passions and your lust, you become somebody God can work through in a mighty way. It's D.O. Moody, often used quote, said that the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is completely committed to him. And without self-control, we become people that, that can't control anything in our lives. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. The imagery here is that in the old days, they had in the ancient world, they had walls around their city. And he says, if you were without self-control, it's like your walls have been knocked down and you were inviting the enemy to come and take whatever he wants to take to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, I've talked about this before, but there's one of my favorite tests, and we'll kind of finish with this. One of my favorite tests... Um, or experiments that happened happened like 30 years ago. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Test. Anybody ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Test? Stanford Marshmallow Test was this. They, they took kids and they put them in a room and they put a plate on the uh, right in front of them and on that plate they put one marshmallow. And then the lady doing the experiment, we've talked about this actually before here, but the lady doing the experiment said, I'm going to walk out of the room and I'm going to come back sometime and if I come back and that marshmallow is still on the plate, I'm going to give you more marshmallows. But if I come back and that marshmallow is not on the plate, that's all you get. And then they walked out of the room and observed. 
And here's what's interesting. They said, that, you know, there were some people that were just, they called the gobblers. Like the moment the door shut, they just, it's done. Like some of you, some of you know people like that. Some of you are people like that. All right. Like none. And then they said what was also interesting was to see the, uh, the, the games and the ways they tried to cope with it. So like some of them were like, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it. And so there was one that would just walk all the way around the table like on a multiple time. One kid that <laughs> was on a, a plate that was on a table, one kid got down and started licking the table. I don't know if he thought that the uh, flavor was going to transmute into the wood or like the, all these coping mechanisms. But here's what they said. Here's, they traced those kids for like 30 years. And they said in all their experiments of all time, the one factor that demonstrated most whether people were going to be successful or not was if they ate the marshmallow or they didn't. And those that didn't turned out far more successful than those that did. A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken. But if we figure that out, God's going to do something amazing in our lives. Young men, there are some of you that are being controlled by passions and lust that are being controlled by the desire for money or the desire for fame, that have had your mind twisted in a sexual way, that it is controlling how you think and how you act. And to that, Paul says, the gospel is where you depend on the grace of God to change that. Young men, he gives us one command, and it's self-control, because otherwise nothing else really matters. So here's the deal. What does all that have to do with life? Well, you take your own personal kind of thing and you look at it, but here's the big picture, all right? The big picture is this, that God's witness in our life is demonstrated best in the mundane things that we do and the way we interact with our family and our friends and the way we work and that people see in us what God wants to do. That's how we display the gospel. And I just wonder how you're displaying the gospel. Has it changed who you are? Everything about you? Or is it just a part of what's happening in your life? Let's pray together.